And the leaping off point for this message this morning uh, is this idea, this phrase, the gospel of the kingdom that you'll find in uh, verse 23 of Matthew 4. But begin reading with me at Matthew 4, verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. I'll remind you that this is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, please be with us as we, as we consider your word together. We're grateful that you have given us um, a word that can be trusted. It can be trusted because you have spoken it. You never lie. You never deceive. You always speak the truth. Uh, and so we can stand here uh, and we can rest with confidence upon this, your word. But we need more than your word. We need your spirit. We need for your spirit to accompany the reading and the preaching of your word. And we ask you, Lord, that you would be faithful to us, your people, that you'd help us, that you'd come, that you would attend this, that you would make our hearts pliable and soft and receptive, and that you would take this, your word, and drill it deep into our souls especially so that we might have comfort and encouragement and the hope that you intend for us to have from and through your word. Lord, please do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, The sermon title is Everybody Loves a Story, and Everybody Does Love a Story. Uh, Everybody loves uh, a story where the good guys win and the bad guys are defeated. Everybody loves a story where strong characters, where people of, uh, of virtue 
will oppose uh, evil and uh, at the end of the day will triumph over evil. Even stories that, that end tragically, like Romeo and Juliet, uh, is a hopeful story. And it's a hopeful story because it's the story of two people who sacrifice themselves and who sacrifice their love to expose uh, the evil, the hypocrisies, the, the tragedies that exist among relationships in fair Verona. Uh, it's a tragedy, but it's a good story because in the end, the truth does prevail and triumph. Christianity is a story. Uh, it certainly is uh, truth in an objective, uh, propositional sense. There is certainly a content to it. But it's also a story. Uh, it's a story about things that have been done. It's a story about things that are being done. Uh, it's a story about things that will be done. Uh, it's a story about good triumphing over evil. It's a story about truth prevailing over lies. It's a, tr- a story of hope prevailing uh, over despair and despondency and helplessness. It's a story that Indian River Presbyterian Church is caught up in. It's the story of the kingdom. It's the story of the kingdom of God. This little phrase that I asked you to think about, verse 23, is the phrase that summarizes this story. It is what Jesus proclaimed. It is what Jesus went through all of these cities and and towns and villages in this region of Galilee, heralding and announcing and preaching. He went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. It's what John announced. Go back to the third chapter, the first verse of the third chapter. John preached the gospel of repentance for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The, the phrase, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, these are phrases that occur more than 50 times in Matthew's gospel. And where the phrases don't occur explicitly, the ideas are there. Uh, the ideas related to the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And again, it's the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached. Now, what is the gospel of the kingdom? Just take those two words, gospel uh, and kingdom. What do they mean? Well, uh, you may know, you probably know that in uh, in the old languages, in the original language, uh, our word gospel comes from two words which mean good news. Great good news or great announcement. Uh, The announcement was always attached to the announcer. The message was always attached to the messenger. The messenger would come, and when the messenger would come, representing the one who had sent him, uh, there was always the hope, the expectation that there was something good to be announced. And that's the case. It's a good announcement when the messenger shows up. The messenger brings uh, good news. What's interesting is that in the 15th and 16th centuries, and and probably a little before that, but especially in the 15th and 16th centuries, the translators of the Bible, those who put the Greek and Hebrew over into the English, used the word gospel. 
Now, that's the word that we use. That's the word that appears here in this text. It's an old English word. It's a contraction of two words. Two words contracted, God's spell. God's spell. The gospel is God's spell. It's God's announcement. And in the announcement, he, if you will, casts a spell over those who hear it. Now, when you think of spells, you think of of magic and and the supernatural and and that sort of things kind of thing and a, a spell that may numb somebody or deaden somebody. But this this spell doesn't numb and deaden. Uh, this spell, this gospel, this good announcement, stops people in their tracks. Uh, it's it's that good. Good news. It's eye-popping. It's jaw-dropping. It's stop-you-in-your-tracks good news. Not ordinary good news, but spellbinding good news. So what's the good news? Well, it has to do with a kingdom. And if there's a kingdom, then it has to do with a king. Uh, And from the very first moments after the fall, after the sin of the man and the woman, the announcement, the heralding, the eye-popping, jaw-dropping, stop-you-in-your-tracks proclamation of a kingdom began to be uttered. If you go back to Genesis 3, God himself is the first prophet. God is the first one to speak. Genesis 3.15, God tells Adam and Eve that he will put enmity, he tells the serpent uh, in the hearing of Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular, will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. He will bruise, he will crush your head. What's the first announcement? What's the first eye-popping, jaw-dropping, stop-you-in-your-tracks proclamation? It's that somebody is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to crush the serpent. He's going to crush the evil one. And when he crushes the evil one, he's going to defeat the lies and the deceit and the darkness and the death. Everything that flow out of that original temptation. Everything that we struggle against and fight with and try to resist and overcome. It's all going to be destroyed. It's all going to be overcome. And it continues. These announcements continue through the rest of the Old Testament over and over and over again, whether in the prophets or in the Psalms or even in the narrative literature of the Old Testament. These promises continue to be made that God is going to do something. And it's arresting. It's spellbinding. And you get just one of those promises cited in Matthew chapter 4. Verses 14 and 15. Jesus uh, withdraws to Galilee, this region in the northern part of the country. He lives in Nazareth for a while. Then he goes to Capernaum. 
And he resides in this region of Zebulun and Naphtali, these northern tribes. And Matthew says he lives there in the providence of God, by the direction of God, so that this prophecy might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the northernmost regions of the promised land. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Why that prophecy? Among all of the prophecies that Matthew could have extracted out of the Old Testament, why this one? Well, here's the reason. Matthew was touching a raw nerve in the hearts and souls of his fellow Jews, those for whom this gospel is written and constructed. This gospel cites more prophecies than any of the other gospels. How come? Because it was written for a Jewish readership. And Matthew is striking a raw nerve, a point of pain and anguish in the hearts and souls of the Jews because it was in the north. It was in the north and from the north that all of the enemies of Israel would pour into the promised land. The Assyrians came from the north. The Babylonians came from the north. The Persians and the Medes came from the north. The Greeks and the Romans came from the north. And when they came, they burned and they pillaged and they killed and they destroyed everything in their paths. And so the northern region in the minds and hearts of the people of Israel, was a place of darkness and even deep darkness, a place characterized by death. And in that darkest and most tragic of all places, Matthew reminds the people, that is where the light is first going to appear, in the darkest of places, in the most hopeless of places. And from there, that light will extend and will expand and will be broadened, touching not only the Jews, but the Gentiles. The Gentiles are in view. As Matthew cites this promise and says, this king, this light has dawned and the light will continue to shine and grow. The gospel of the kingdom, people who walked in darkness, in deep darkness, on them, this light has dawned. Something has begun. A king has arrived. And when he comes, the kingdom comes with him. So these two words together, the gospel of the kingdom, it's a, it's a phrase that is filled with hope. But let's parse it a little bit further. What is the gospel of the kingdom? More specifically, the king has come. The king has inaugurated the kingdom. Well, what is the good news? What is this uh, eye-popping, jaw-dropping, stop-you-in-your-tracks, hope-filled announcement? Well, it's a bunch of things. The gospel of the kingdom is like a beam of light that gets shot through a prism. And what comes out on the other side of the prism is this rainbow of colors. It's like Joseph in his coat of many colors. It's a bunch of things. But here are some of them. 
gospel in the first place means means that I can have a new standing with God. It means that I can have a new standing with God. That's sort of where it begins. That's where this good news begins. It means that I can be forgiven. It means that I can be delivered from guilt and from shame and from the threat of judgment. It means that I can know at very, very deep levels a joy that this world simply cannot give me. It means that I can have a new standing. It means that all of this threat can be gone forever. The bondage of guilt and fear, doubt and despair. Listen to what Paul says as he talks about the gospel. I mean, to get a handle on this rainbow of the gospel, you've got to range all throughout the gospels and the New Testament and you you get different colors and hues of it from different places. But listen to Paul as he talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Begin at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Jesus Christ reconciled us to Himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What's in this passage? What's Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about... He's talking about something that we frankly don't want to talk about. He's assuming something that we don't want to assume about ourselves. And that is that we are sinners. Sin is a real deal and it's a real problem. And it leaves us separated from God and it leaves hostility and enmity between us and God. But what Paul is saying is that God wasn't satisfied, wasn't happy to leave us in that condition. But he took it upon himself to be in the world, seeking to reconcile us to himself. And how did he do it? He did it through Christ. He did it through the cross. If you will, the cross is the prism. If we said the gospel of the kingdom is like a beam of light that gets shot through a prism and produces all of this diversity of color, the cross is that prism. That God was in, God was in Christ, seeking through Christ to reconcile sinners to himself. And how does he do it? Verse 21. He does it in the cross. 
Listen to this. For our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul is describing is this great transaction that has occurred. And I I know we've got a congregational meeting in a few minutes. But I would love to land on this and stay here imploring you, pleading with you. As Paul pled with the Corinthians, as he sought to implore the Corinthians to understand this thing that God has done, that God has taken Jesus, the Son of His love, the One in whom He delights, the one who loved his father with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength every moment of every day, who never thought anything, said anything, did anything other than what was pleasing to his father. The father took his innocent son and impaled him on the cross. And when he did that, He took my sin away from me. This is the way I like to describe it to people. What God did in the cross was strip His Son of His righteousness and strip you of your unrighteousness, clothing Christ with your unrighteousness so that you might be clothed with His righteousness. You both become naked at the cross. You lose your unrighteousness. And Christ is robed in it. And Christ loses His righteousness. And you become clothed in it. So that the Son, when He dies, bears the wrath and judgment of God. So that you might be clothed with that righteousness, declared not only forgiven, but innocent and positively righteous. There's a popular song that captures this. You broke the bonds. You loosed the chains. You carried the cross and all my shame. And I believe it. That's the gospel of the kingdom. Folks, you you rub shoulders every Sunday morning with people who won't tell you this but whose consciences are desperately sad and bruised and fearful and guilty. What is this church about? What is any church about? It is about heralding this announcement that people who are loaded down with guilt and shame can be free of it. Free at the level of conscience. Given hope, given a joy, but that's not it. That's not the end of it. Here's another color. And I could land on this one for an hour. It isn't just that you become forgiven. It isn't just that you're free of guilt and shame. It isn't just that you get the righteousness of Jesus. Listen to the language of the New Testament. We'll see some of this tonight. It's a kind of a hook to get you to come back tonight. We'll see some more of this tonight when we look at the Lord's Prayer. How does Jesus command his disciples to address the holy God of heaven and earth, the creator of the ends of the earth. 
He commands them to address Him as Father. You're not just forgiven. You're sons. You're daughters. I'll just encourage you this afternoon to read a couple of passages. Read Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. Read 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Behold, what an eye-popping, jaw-dropping, stop-you-in-your-tracks love this is that the Father has given to us, that we should be called the sons and daughters of God, that we should be called the children of God. Paul says, if we're sons and daughters, if we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs with our elder brother Jesus. Heirs of what? Heirs of everything that belongs to the Father. Is there anything that doesn't belong to the Father? No, everything belongs to the Father. So what am I an heir of? I'm an heir of everything. Mr. Windows 2006 can't claim that. He may be the richest man in America, but he's not as rich as I am. This is real stuff. I'm a child of my heavenly father. An heir with Jesus, my elder brother of all of the father's house. I'm a son. But that isn't the end of it. There's more to the gospel of the kingdom even than that. There are more colors and more hues and more beauty to be unpacked. It's a wonderful thing to be forgiven. It's a wonderful thing to be a son. But I want more than that, frankly. I want more than forgiveness. I want more than an inheritance. I don't know about you, but I want to be different. I get a new standing because of the gospel of the kingdom. But the gospel of the kingdom tells me I'm also a new person. Uh, My wife really wants me to be different. My kids really want me to be different. But I get tired of me. I get tired of being the same old person. I'd love to find bold, new, creative ways to be a sinner. But I keep lapsing back into the dull, old, boring ways of sinning. The ways I've sinned a hundred and a thousand times before. Could we trade sin patterns just for some adventure? (laughs) The gospel of the kingdom tells me not only that I'm forgiven, not only that I'm robed in righteousness, not only that I'm a son, but the gospel of the kingdom tells me that I can be a new person. Listen to what Paul says. Ephesians chapter 2. I hope you understand it's killing me to have to talk about these things so briefly. But what I'm encouraging you to understand is that this is the stuff that animates me, that gets me up in the morning, that gives me hope, that is the reason for the gospel ministry. Listen to Paul, Ephesians 2. He says, this is what you were like. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Isn't that interesting language? Striking language. You were dead and you walked around in death. That's what we were like apart from Christ. That's what this world is like apart from Christ. It's a place of death. That's what flows out of the original act of disobedience and rebellion. Go back to Genesis 3 and 4 and see it. What flows out of that original act of disobedience? The man accuses his wife. 
of being responsible for their predicament. You ever heard that story in your homes and your marriages? But then after accusing her, he accuses God, in effect saying, if you hadn't given me this woman, we wouldn't be in the predicament that we're in. Lies, deceit, distortion, death, it all flows. What's the first crime that's committed after the fall? After the crime of distortion, lying, deceit, one brother kills another brother. You look at what's transpiring in in the Middle East, riots in Baghdad. You look at famine in the Darfur region of the Sudan. You look at the terrible atrocities, the trafficking in young children, children being sold into slavery in Southeast Asia. It's death. It's all death. Where is the hope? The hope is the gospel of the kingdom, that people who were dead in trespasses and sins, who walk about in this darkness, who are imprisoned by it, can be released, can be set free, can become new people. And that's what God says happened. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, has raised us up with Christ. Raised us up. That's what the story of Lazarus is about. Jesus didn't stand outside that tomb and simply say to Lazarus, isn't it good news that you're forgiven, that you're robed in righteousness? That you're an adopted son of your Father in heaven? No. Jesus gave us a picture of the gospel of the kingdom. He spoke a word of regenerating power. And when he spoke that word, Lazarus heard that word and came forth. He came out of the grave. Go read it. It's John chapter 11. At the end of it, the last thing Jesus says to this dumbstruck crowd. This crowd that has come face to face with an eye-popping, jaw-dropping, stop-you-in-your-tracks expression of the realities of the gospel of the kingdom. The last thing Jesus says to the crowd, you know what it is? He says, go unbind the poor man. He came out of the tomb with his Grave cloths still on him. How did he come out? I, I don't know. He was bound tight in these cloths. He, he hopped out or he shuffled out. He came out somehow. But the crowd that saw him was so dumbstruck by what they saw, Jesus had to tell them to go let him loose. That's a picture of the gospel of the kingdom. It's not just that I get forgiven, that I get a new set of clothes that I get to be a son. That I get to be a new person. Now look, I'm not naive about this. I understand that the ministry of the gospel, as you are involved in one another's lives, can be pretty ugly. And if I can just press the illustration of Lazarus a little bit farther, the reason it can be pretty ugly is because for the rest of our lives until Christ comes back, what we're doing for each other and what the ministry of the church is and what the ministry of the gospel is, is helping each other get unwrapped, get rid of the stinky grave cloths so we can know more and more and more of the life that Christ 
has imparted to us by His might and His power. So I'm not naive about this. You need to know I've got my stuff. And it's not pretty. And I want you to know as I come to this thing that I know you got stuff. I don't know what it is exactly. But I know you've got stuff. And I want you to know this. Nothing will surprise me and nothing will drive me away. Because nothing surprises Jesus and nothing drives Him away. He's the one who loved you in the first place. He's the one who's died for you in the first place. He's the one who by His Spirit has imparted this new life to you. He got the thing started. I say that to Jesus all the time. I am your problem. You started with me. You took this thing on. And I expect you to finish what you started. And He promises that He will. So I have a new standing and I'm a new person, but that's not all there is. Here's the third thing among many, many, many things. I'm part of a new world, a new community, a new order of things. The church in the midst of the world is the new world in the midst of the world. What's the gospel of the kingdom? The gospel of the kingdom is that the king has come and he has inaugurated his kingdom. He is announcing that kingdom in and through his church and before God to the surrounding world. And the final outcome of this is a new heaven and a new earth. Everything you have ever hoped for. Everything you could possibly desire. Everything you dared to imagine. A new heaven, a new earth. Let me read a passage for you. From Isaiah. It's Isaiah 35. It is one of my favorite gospel passages. Um, Isaiah, I think, is the Old Testament gospel. I just encourage you to read it. Just kind of start at chapter 1, verse 1, and go all the way through all 66 chapters. It'll take you a while, but it is a great read. It is a part of the story. Through the first half of the book, most of what the book talks about is judgment. But every once in a while, in fact, with some regularity, you get these windows into the hope of the gospel of the kingdom. Here's one of them. Listen to these words. Just maybe even, let me encourage you to do this. Just close your eyes. I'll read it. You listen to it. And see. See if there isn't Something in these words that resonates with the deep, deep longings in your own soul. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Do not be afraid. 
Behold, your God is coming with vengeance. He will come and He will save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened. And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And the lame man will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will be released to sing for joy and waters will break forth in the wilderness and there will be streams in the desert and the burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The desolate haunts of jackals where they lie down, the grass will become reeds and rushes. And there will be a highway in the midst of that paradise. And it will be called the highway of holiness. And the unclean will not pass over it. It will belong to those who walk upon it. And even if they are fools, they will not go astray. There won't be a lion there. No ravenous beast. Nothing that would threaten or harm or devour will be found there. But the redeemed will walk upon it with safety and security and abundance surrounding them. The ransomed of the Lord will return. They come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy. And the enemies of their souls, the things that break their hearts, sorrow and sighing, will flee away. I did a little editorializing as I read that. A little Puritan commentary. But what God promises in the gospel of the kingdom is a new heaven and new earth where there are no deserts and there's no wilderness, where there is abundance, where there is water, where every tree blossoms not only in its season but perpetually. What's the gospel of the kingdom? The gospel of the kingdom is the promise, the hope of a new heaven and a new earth where all of the hope and promises of the kingdom are fully expressed. There's a passage in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 26, when Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper. And he says to his disciples as he institutes the Lord's Supper, He says, drink this cup, for I tell you that I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. I don't want to do or say anything that might offend anybody on a day when a vote is going to be taken, but Please, teetotalers, don't don't flee away. 
the bottles of wine will be liberally spread upon the table along with all of the food for feasting and drinking and celebrating in the presence of Jesus. And your eyes will see it, new eyes that will not fade. And your noses will smell these things. I'm losing my sense of smell. And I can't wait to get it back. And my ears will hear things and my fingers will touch things and my mouth will salivate and taste things in the new heaven and the new earth and the abundance and blessedness of righteousness and peace and joy and life and fullness will never be taken away. What is the gospel of the kingdom? Not only that I have a new standing, Not only that I'm a new person, but that I have access to a new home. I'm part of a new community. The promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Again, as you think about people that you rub shoulders with, that you talk to, that you interact with every day, in this rainbow of color that is the gospel of the kingdom, There is a color for every need. There is a sound, a note for every soul. What is Indian River River Presbyterian Church caught up in? It's caught up in the grand story of the gospel of the kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you uh, for loving Uh, The unlovely, thank you for redeeming the broken, the destitute, uh, the utterly helpless. Thank you for giving us uh, a great announcement to make. An eye-popping, jaw-dropping, stop-you-in-your-tracks, grand, grand story. Lord, you know the needs of the people in this room. You know exactly the note from this symphony of sound that each of us needs to hear. You know exactly the color that each of these souls needs to have some hope. And I pray, Lord, that you would Give to us that note. Give to each of us that color so that we might go away from this place perhaps a bit more hopeful than we were when we came. Deeply encouraged about the gospel of the kingdom of King Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.